Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett here until six o'clock tonight. Sad passing of Dr. Bill Williams. I'll be speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, who'll be paying a tribute to Bill. Exposing Israel's apartheid system with Bishop George Browning, who's the President of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Part two of Jacob Greck talking about the history and present of Pine Gap. Cultural Genocide in Sri Lanka with Dr. Brian Singaratna. Massacre in Syria and Australia's complicity with Dr. Tim Anderson. And that's about it, except for Mr. Kevin Healy. And he's coming up right now. A weak journalist than when the unpatriotic, indeed treacherous greed and selfishness of dole bludgers and pensioners was exposed yet again when they rejected little cuts to their exorbitant incomes when those cuts are needed to balance the budget so the government can undertake important reforms like tax cuts for the filthy rich and the great corporations who need the taxes they don't pay cut, meaning they'll be avoiding lower taxes, or sorry, tax minimising lower taxes, which makes lots of sense. And the government and the filthy rich know those tax cuts will also benefit the myopic dole bludgers and pensioners. And the dole and pension cuts comprise only about 8 or 10% of the cost of the tax cuts. So the government will have to find even more cuts, highlighting even more patently, alarmingly, how selfish the bludgers are. And thank goodness the Socialist Party is happy to sit down with the caring business class party and work out the cuts required to achieve the all-important tax reform. They're not called the opposition for nothing, so they must be called it for something, although what that something is we've got no idea. Even so, crying fail as the government, desperate to find those savings by slashing the doll and the pension and programs that threaten the hegemony of fossil profits, that sort of public waste, but intent on honouring an election promise to great liberal thinkers Corey St. Bernardi and the gang to spend a couple of hundred million to prevent the blasphemous abuse of Christian marriage between a man and a woman. Crying foul that they need the law waived so they can offend and insult. We must have a level playing field, the true blue Aussie Christian lobbying vitriol bemoaned. How can we conduct a balanced and rational debate if we cannot insult and offend these unnatural subhuman servants of Satan? A strong point by George. George, of course, one of the great liberal thinkers, Christian by commitment and Christian by name. George, Christian son of a man and a woman. And Corey knows allowing same-sex marriage would lead to bestiality, no doubt about it. And being a St. Bernard, naturally he takes it seriously and nervously. 
naturally over unnatural and the bloody socialists look like knocking back the plebiscite which is the only way to stave off the unnatural and big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and Corey and George and all that lot say the socialists have no choice but to support the non-binding 200 mil or so plebiscite because they have a mandate and we must congratulate all mainstream journalists for sensibly not asking or acknowledging that those who opposed the plebiscite received a mandate to oppose the plebiscite. But apparently, once a government is elected, everyone has to support everything it proposes. So how come we really have a 100% vote? And how come, given the socialists must respect the Caring Business Class Party's mandate, the Caring Business Class Party doesn't have to respect the Caring Business Class Party's mandate on superannuation? Because Corey and George and the great liberal thinkers told Malcolm and economic guru scuttled them more lash son, that mandate would hurt the filthy rich and so the people got that one wrong. And Corey and George and the great liberal thinkers had to adjust the mandate, a non-core mandate apparently, so the filthy rich would get justice. And the socialists would be treating the true Aussie people with contempt if they did not support the non-mandate. And Malcolm said respecting the non-mandate showed he was a true Democrat who consulted over decisions. Uh, so you consulted the true Aussie people. Certainly, you're not suggesting Corey and George and Erica Betts on the bosses aren't true Aussie people, are you? Corey and George and Eric did insert one rider into the issue of the mandate we must respect. We must respect that mandate if it is a mandate with a woman. But if it is a mandate with a with with, with a, I can't say it with with a man. There, I said it. If it is, then we must prevent bestiality wherever it raises its unnatural, ugly head. While congratulating the media, big thanks for the saturation coverage of that maiden speech, as they call it, of a terrenilious woman who spoke in her traditional language, page after page, comment after comment, picture upon picture. We've commented on the experts who know all about the greatest little economic order of them all, telling us repeatedly slow wages growth is some sort of problem, and as we keep telling them, that's easily fixed. Well, doing their bit to maintain the slow wage growth bit, well, wage non-growth, BHP Billiston for bloody huge profits, the big non-true blue Aussie, which after a year of frustrated enterprise agreement discussions with coal unions in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, good, good lifting the world out of poverty coal, evil, evil unions, frustrated because the workers apparently had overblown expectations like being paid and provided with crippling work conditions crippling to the caring employer, that is, bloody huge peas made its final non-negotiable offer, true, no embellishment, a three-year wage freeze and reduced bonuses, superannuation, insurance payments and rent subsidies, an annual rent increase of $3,120 taken from the frozen wage. Bloody huge peas feels confident because it has contracted out many of the jobs to contractors under cutting wages and conditions, not that there would be any sort of conspiracy between all these caring employers to undermine wages and conditions. <laughs> 
Accept our freeze or work for even less for our contractor. It's just they need to unite against worker greed and evil union lawlessness. It happens so often, doesn't it, when an unrelated third party, an evil union, gets involved in the win-win relationship between caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers. Poor, caring employers complaining that negotiations have dragged on and on and on. We have negotiated in good faith, but the union, which should not even be involved in this matter, won't take no for an answer. Speaking of wage cuts, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin finally addressed the Carlton United Against Workers 65% pay cut dispute this week. It attacked the picketers for their violence against workers who just want to go to work. We can't call them scabs, because as we reported, the courts have ruled that illegal, intimidatory, and there's nothing violent or intimidatory or illegal in sending workers home with 65% less pay if they make it home following the accompanying reduction in conditions. Also evil, how evil those non-Palestinian non-people are, threatening world peace from their non-country, a threat to liberty, freedom and democracy in the liberty, freedom and democracy-loved country that used to be their country and which they selfishly still claim is their country, ignoring the stroke of a British and its respectable partner's pen. So evil, the US arm has been forced to hand 50 billion over to poor peace-love and Zion for trained killing, showing what a threat those non-country non-people are. A true win-win this time, because a condition is Zion must spend the 50 bill with US of merchants of death. Related to these great protectors, lovers of liberty, freedom, and mentioned a couple of weeks ago, praise for the US Arbs whistleblower protection providing huge rewards, five million in the case we quoted, for those who expose particularly overseas company allowing the US Arb to fine them trillions. Imagine what Julian Assange and Edward Snowden must be worth, we speculated. Well, top advice for Edward from Bradley Moss, National Security Attorney in Washington, D.C., in a debate on democracy now on this station yesterday. Okay, the national security laws don't allow the common good defence at trial. Makes sense when you draft laws protecting your illegality to disallow any loophole like a defence. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty until proven guilty. But he can raise the common good defence, explain why he thought it important to expose government illegality in the plea stage after he has been found guilty, inevitably given the disallowance of any defence. Uh, but Chelsea Manning got 35 years at that stage, it was pointed out. And here's where Bradley provided his encouraging legal advice for Edward. But Chelsea was allowed to explain her reasons, and the sentence was reduced from life, which the court and the prosecution wanted, to only 35 years. Without that plea on penalty, Chelsea could have got more than 35 years. That was 35 years without accounting for time already served, if I recall, but that invaluable legal advice should have Edward Snowden heading home on the first plane, knowing he could be back on the streets by as early as 2051.
Big Supremo Malcolm has headed to New York to advise the world that a free kick to capital trade agreement will lift billions out of poverty. Free profits agreement this week, good, good lifting the world out of poverty call last week and maybe next week. Imagine how many billions, he did say billions, could be lifted out of poverty with free kick to capital trade in coal. Although it does beg the question, given the lifting the poor out of poverty qualities of free trade, profit and coal combined, how come there are still billions living in poverty? Must be their own fault, their own sloth. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And remember, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning on 3CR for City Limits. Hoi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah! 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 That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Yesterday I spoke with Dr. Margie Beavis, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, for our monthly segment on nuclear issues and peace. And it wasn't a normal talk, but to remember a great man, Dr. Bill Williams, anti-nuclear activist, doctor, and much more. Yes, last Monday, Bill died in his sleep. He didn't wake up, probably from a heart attack. Bill was a co-founder of an organisation called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. He was president of the Medical Association for Prevention of War and he's been a passionate campaigner against nuclear weapons, nuclear power, uranium mining and working to prevent war for decades. He cared deeply for those in Australia, the Pacific and around the world who have suffered from nuclear weapons and and the nuclear industry itself. We're all going to miss Bill enormously. He was a man of great vision, passion and compassion. He had a really strong belief in a world free of nuclear weapons and untethered from the nuclear fuel chain, and that fired our work. He was energetic, intelligent, and he had a humanity and a humour that was really inspiring for everybody around him. As I said, he was not only involved in co-founding ICANN, the International Campaign for the Evolution of Nuclear Weapons, that was set up by the Medical Association for Prevention of War in 2006. He was also president of MAPW and also heavily involved in the international positions for the prevention of nuclear war. And that group, whilst he was involved, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. And that was for helping bridge the Cold War divide, bringing together the Russians and the Americans, and that massively reduced the nuclear stockpiles around the world. Amongst all this, he worked as a GP in Torquay on the Victorian South Coast, and also had worked in remote Aboriginal communities in the Kintor, the Western Desert region of the Northern Territory. He loved everything. He loved a good wave. He surfed most days. He was a terrific banjo player. He was devoted to his family. His family, he's got a wife and two daughters, and devoted to his work. He was a writer. He wrote a number of books. The latest one, Bleed, you can get off the internet if you're interested. It's a tremendous story about how much he loves his wife, his partner, Gisela, when she had a catastrophic bleed in the Western Desert area and they had to get a long, long way from medical help. He 
spoke very movingly at many events about nuclear weapons. This is a quote from him. We need a determined worldwide movement to outlaw and abolish nuclear weapons. We need to get there in this generation. We need to build a wave of public opinion into a mighty crescendo, a massive surging with irresistible force which carries us all the way to absolutely zero nukes. And with, without it, even the most inspirational leaders will falter on the way. His leadership has been vital to the success of ICANN. ICANN, as I think I've spoken to your listeners before in last month, had a tremendous success with not trying to, successfully getting a working group from the United Nations to pass a resolution that will take a resolution calling for negotiations on the nuclear weapons ban to start in 2017. And that now will go to a vote of both the First Committee and the UN General Assembly in October and December of this year. So that is hugely exciting. And Bill has played no small role in this happening. So we're, we're, we're closer to nuclear weapons disarmament and ban than we have been for decades. And Bill was a huge part of this. Speaking personally, as a friend, he was someone who you could always ring up and chew his ear. He was tremendous in his guidance and his kindness to many people around him, and particularly in the peace and anti-nuclear movement. He was really absolutely a visionary and inspiring leader. And the, the thing that we're saying, if people want to do something in memory of Bill, support ICANN, because we've got to make sure that this vote that comes through in November and December holds the nations true to getting nuclear disarmament really um, happening. So um, if people are interested, ICANN can be found at ICANNW.org.au and um, particularly in Australia, the Australian, he was president of the Australian branch of ICANN, so the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia. And if people want to Google that and make a contribution, that would be fabulous because we as campaigners think the thing that we can do best to honour what Bill has done is, is really to work incredibly hard to get this to actually happen, and that would be the best thing we could do to remember him. Marky, can you talk more about his work in Aboriginal communities with preventative public health? He worked in the Western Desert region of Northern Territory, a place called Kintour, um, for about a decade when his kids were smaller. And uh, I think he worked there both as a GP but also trying to bring in measures that would improve health um, in this region. Um, I'm stretching into my memory, but I have vague memories that there was a push to try and bring in, which that may be another region. So in some, some desert regions, they try and bring in swimming pools, which improves public health in the area. I've... I think Bill may have been involved in that, but that is stretching my memory back quite a few years. Prior to that, he, when he was a student, he worked in Zimbabwe and in Latin America, and that, that really, I think, fired him up about what you could do in terms of public health in, in Zimbabwe. He, he worked delivering babies whilst in Nicaragua. He helped run mother-baby clinics um, amongst the mosquito people on the Caribbean coast. Whilst he was in Central Australia, the... And I'll say this wrongly, so forgive me, the Nyankaris worked with him to apply the wisdom of their law, and so he combined their cultural work with his medicine, and at times he was involved in sort of dancing at corroborees. He sent his attendant sacred ceremonial grounds in the aid of initiates who were not well. Rescued sick old men on hunting trips when they went to the Gibson Desert, coordinated sort of palliative care conversations, and he said he did those mostly in Pintubi. So how you do a palliative care conversation in Pintubi with 60 family members seated in the dust, it's a pretty big ask, but he was, he was up to the task. After he graduated, as well as the 
thing that he saw so many health problems, sort of sexual abuse of children, domestic violence, murder and suicide. And in fact, that was one of the topics of his first book, which he wrote about the health implications of dysfunctional masculinity, where he, the book is called Men, Sex, Power and Survival, and that came out in 1989, and he wrote that with his wife, Gisela. Did he also take part in meetings at the UN? Oh, definitely. Um, in fact, he was in the working group. He didn't go to the most recent one in October, but I'm um, yeah, he did go to the one in August, and those working groups, as I said, have been tremendous in what they've achieved, with a clear majority of, well, an overwhelming majority of countries supportive of a nuclear weapons ban treaty. He also, along with Professor Tillman Ruff and ICANN, were pivotal in getting the humanitarian conferences that have brought this about. What, what basically they did was about three years ago, and there were three conferences sort of four years ago, three years ago, two years ago where they invited national representatives, so a large number of nations sent their representatives and they basically educated them about what the meaning of nuclear weapons nuclear warfare is, but not only is it the incredible devastation and loss that at the moment, where the Red, in fact the Red Cross says there's no possible response to a nuclear weapons detonation, so the only possible uh, ethical approaches to abolish them but it's not just that nuclear warfare direct impact you end up with a nuclear winter that will last about a decade and that decade long nuclear winter will mean that crops, they've done quite detailed modelling on rice and corn and wheat showing that crops would crop yields would drop by about 10 to 15 percent in a number of countries and this in turn would lead to a famine and that global famine would be putting about 2 billion lives at risk so these weapons have such appalling potential and um, we have effective bans on chemical weapons, biological weapons, landmines, cluster munitions, dum-dum bullets. So now is the time to ban these, the worst of all weapons. And mind you, it won't be easy after, the, after a weapons ban treaty. There will then be time verifying stockpiles. So there will probably be several years given stockpile verifications and then there will be actually the reduction in stockpiles and removal of these weapons. But... As I said, we are closer now than we have been for several decades to real disarmament, and I think one of the things Bill would be really pushing us, and <laughs> I can feel him almost poking from the skies to say, you know, get on with it, don't let... We're, we are going to miss him terribly because he was a really fabulous bloke, but he would also say, you know, get a wriggle on, do this, This now is the time, and that's that's really what we're, we're thinking at this point. Mm. And that said, I'm going to miss him awfully. He's at a personal, professional and activist level he was an amazing man. I remember the last time I interviewed him it was about the the anniversary of Chernobyl and I tried to get a, a landline from him he said oh no you'll have to ring me on my mobile because that day of the week it's my day in the nursing home I go and help look after the people in the nursing home. Yeah yeah no he was he was such a man he looked uh, he did I'm sure, I mean, as I said, file surfer, writer, banjo player, GP, activist, and I probably left out about, you know, so many things. He was someone who cared for so many people and did so many things. He was an amazing man, and for him to die at 57 is such a tragedy, most for his family, but also for the rest of us. Thanks, Margie. No worries, Jen. And that was Dr Margie Beavis, the current president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, speaking about the past president of the Medical Association, 
Dr. Bill Williams, who passed away 10 days ago. Bishop George Browning is the president of APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and is a long-time outspoken critic of the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians. I interviewed George at the weekend. George, although this interview focuses on Palestinians' lack of human rights over decades at the hands of the Israeli government and its so-called defence force, we need to acknowledge your work over many years has not been confined to advocacy for Palestine alone. Good morning, Jan. I began my life in the UK. I grew up on a farm in the UK. I have seven siblings. There's eight in the family. And all of us are really have inherited the values of our parents and all of us have been involved in social justice in one form or another. Probably the most well-known member of my family is my sister Valerie, who's won a number of international awards for her work in Ethiopia. She's lived there since the 1970s, really. She's married to uh, an Afar elder. Uh, she's a Christian. She's married to a Muslim. And we have a family charity which supports the building of hospitals in rural, rural Ethiopia and, and also in Tanzania. I guess I've inherited a family tray, if I could put it that way, that goes across generations. I first became a bishop in 1985 and headed up the social justice aspect of the church in Queensland for eight years. Notoriously was asked to leave Queensland by Sir Joe Jockey Peterson because of my challenge to parliamentarians who didn't seem to want to be accountable. I'm also involved with social justice in relation to climate and the ethics of, of climate change, the ethics that relate to future generations and also to the poor of the world because most of the damage being done is being done by the prosperous world and the effects are borne by the poor of the world. So there are a number of moral issues in relation to it. But you were wanting to talk about the Palestinians, and I became involved there in the 1970s. When did you first go there, or have you been there? Yeah, I've been, been many times. I became involved because I was running a theological college in New South Wales called St John's at Morpeth, and we, at that stage, were training the Palestinian priests. So we had four students when I was there from Palestine, and I've been back there and visited them in their parishes. The Anglican Church has a number of parishes on the West Bank, and we run uh, two schools on the West Bank and uh, a hospital in the West Bank and another hospital in Gaza. We have a, a reasonable involvement with the Palestinians. Can you explain how those visits have impacted on you? Visiting the Palestinians in their villages, first of all, it's an honour to do that because they're so hospitable and generous. And it blows away preconception. For example, I've never seen an armament or a, or a gun in a Palestinian home. I've seen many of them wielded by the Israeli settlers on the West Bank, but I've never seen one in the hands of a Palestinian. To live in a Palestinian village is to live with the possibility that the water will be on or not on, the electricity might be on or it might not be on, and to live with the... Uh, the humiliation, really, that above you, almost everywhere throughout the West Bank these days, there are these illegal settlements, which are really condominiums of some quality, with water which, for which they can keep their lawn green and they can and they can wash their car. And I think that that a, a settler gets around about 250 litres a day, whereas a Palestinian may or may not get 40 or 50 litres a day of water, which is below 
the minimum recommended by World Health Organization. And I go with them to the checkpoints and the humiliation of trying to get to work or trying to get to hospital or trying to get to school. I've accompanied, I've been in the company of what's called the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program, which is a Christian network, worldwide network, where people give three months of their time to accompany children to school, basically, and also women sometimes to shop or to, to hospital, because Without that accompaniment, the harassment is so great that the journey is not undertaken. So children, Palestinian children, are reluctant to go to school unless they're accompanied by somebody. The children, or all the Palestinians, they're under military occupation and they come under military law, not civilian law, which is against the United Nations legislation or international law. If you occupy a people, you are to provide them with civilian law, but they come under... They've been under military law since 1967, and that in itself is a humiliation and a threat and a, a constant antagonism day by day. And as a result of it, of course, children uh, throw stones and uh, they then get themselves arrested and there are children in jail at the age of 12 or 10, or and even I understand a child of five was once arrested by the military. It's just an impossible situation to live in. And... Being born in the UK, I'm very conscious of the fact that the partition was not arranged by the Palestinians or indeed the Israelis. It was, in, it was international law and really instigated by the British. And it's unfinished business. Israel has been set up as a state, but the Palestinians have never, never been allowed to set up their own state. And so the international community really has an obligation in terms of unfinished business an obligation which the Europeans on the whole are willing to accept, but the Americans are not, and of course Australians are not, and because we constantly side with America and Israel against the Palestinians whenever a resolution comes up at the United Nations to give effect to greater social justice, to greater human rights for the Palestinians, we either abstain or we vote against, which is just so shameful. What was your experience in Gaza? I've never been to Gaza. I would love to have been to Gaza. But have I you have... tried? Yes, but I've been told uh, on the occasions that I've gone that uh, the administration is too difficult, and so I haven't. I, uh, I would like to have gone in the company of the Anglican bishop, but it's, it's never worked out that way. Talk about the establishment of APAN, how that came about. I'm the second president of APAN. APAN stands for Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. It was felt necessary to bring together the various organisations, of which there are many, that support Palestinians on the ground in Australia, and it was felt necessary to have some coordinated voice, particularly to government and also to the public, and so the network was established. And the network is genuinely a network of the broad civil society. So as far as religion is concerned, there are Muslims, Christians and Jews in the network. There are academics and business people, there are politicians and people from all walks of life, really. And like myself, the people in it largely are people who've actually been there because there's nothing like the experience to form your, your view of the injustice that's being perpetrated. Our patron is Major General Ian Gordon, who served in the United Nations peacekeeping force there in the early 2000s. He went there with an open mind and uh, as a true soldier with not wanting to take sides but the experience of having lived there in his own words is an experience which compels him really to speak
speak out against the injustice. So we value his presence very much as, as patron. And we're now encouraging, if we can, more and more people to go there. Uh, unfortunately, most people who go there go only to Israel, and they're encouraged not to visit Palestine and not to be involved with Palestinians on the erroneous story that to go there is too dangerous. Well, it's absolute nonsense. Even I'm told that tourists are told not to go into the into the Arab quarter of Jerusalem. Well, I love going into the Arab quarter of Jerusalem. It's uh, got so much character and, and it's uh, in t- totally um, friendly space. Generally, when I'm there, I stay at St. George's complex, which is the Anglican Cathedral complex, uh, which is in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is being constantly uh, eroded in terms of an Arab quarter, and it's very hard to get permission to build. If you leave there for any length of time, you can't come back, and constantly Arab houses are being um, taken over by um, by Israelis, and uh, obviously the intention is to move Arabs completely out of Jerusalem and to Judaize the whole of the city is obviously the intention. How would you describe the advocacy work that you do here in Australia under APAN? In some respects it's very rewarding, but in other respects it's incredibly frustrating. The the Israeli lobby, the Zionist lobby, is all pervasive. I understand that um, all politicians receive some kind of communication from the Israeli side of things almost on a daily basis, and it's very well resourced and part of that work uh, from the Israeli point of view is to make sure that every state and federal politician visits Israel and comes back with the Israeli side of the story. They say that they they get a balanced view because they're given two hours in Ramallah, but it's very much a quarantined visit and people don't really see the real Palestine. The vast majority of politicians, if they have a view on Palestine, is a view that comes from um, their Israeli visit and so on the coalition side of politics in particular it's very difficult to get support even though I know many privately do support but they're not allowed to express that support publicly. There are two or three coalition members of cabinet who have spent a considerable amount of time in Palestine and are very sympathetic to Palestinian cause but are now not able because of party loyalty to to speak up, which is very, very frustrating and disappointing, really. You set up the APAN tours of Palestine and Israel a number of years ago? Yes. They've been going very successfully, and the people who go on those tours are are our strongest supporters, really. Many of those people are from the Jewish community. It needs to be known that there is a significant proportion of the Jewish community that are totally affronted by the activity of the Netanyahu government and see it as an undermining of the essential values and the traditions and culture of the Jewish community, which has always been a community that has wished to live in harmony with peoples of the world. And they haven't always obviously been treated well, quite shamefully. But it's ironic that those who've been treated so shamefully are now, through Netanyahu, treating others shamefully. And, of course, there are many Jewish people who don't support the establishment of Israel at all. Well, that's an interesting point. There are some. When it was first muted back at the end of the uh, of the uh, 19th century, there were many uh, rabbis who warned strongly against its establishment on, the gr- on two grounds. One, that if it was established, it could only be established 
by disregarding the rights of others, and that was against the Jewish culture and tradition, and that it and its continuing existence could only be perpetrated by continuing those violations of the rights of others, and of course that's the case. And the second reason they gave was that it would actually undermine the security of the Jewish diaspora throughout the world, and, and that obviously is also the case, and it's such a sad thing that you cannot go anywhere near a, a Jewish school or a Jewish establishment of any kind in Australia without coming against armed security guards. They are everywhere. When I was the Bishop of Canberra, I offered hospitality to uh, pretty well anybody. <laughs> and the only time when the federal police came through my house with sniffer dogs and metal detectors was when I uh, gave dinner to the Israeli ambassador. didn't happen when the British High Commissioner was there or others, but only on that occasion. And I think... Those warnings at the end of the 19th century sadly have come true that Israel has made the life of the Jewish diaspora harder and secondly and more seriously it has meant the ongoing alienation of and denial of human rights to those who have lived there and, and, uh, and there seems to be no end to it and which is just uh, so cruel. And on the other hand, there are those who argue that the abuses of Palestinians is a, a source of unrest and war in many parts of the Middle East. Do you agree with that? It is. It isn't the only cause, of course, but no. it, it, it is. And, and the reason why is because Israel is the only country in the Middle East that is so directly aligned with the West. You could say, slight exaggeration, but you could say that Israel is really another state of the United States of America because it, it supports it so much. It's just 50 billion has just been allocated to Israel over the next 10 years or something. Well, there are other violations they're not so obviously violations of a cause from a country which is so closely aligned with the West. And as far as Australia is concerned, Julie Bishop had just said that uh, Australia is Israel's very best friend and she's invited Netanyahu out here next year. We will, of course, protest very loudly about that. But I can understand why Arabs worldwide and, and perhaps Muslims worldwide find the so obvious violation of human rights of Palestinians uh, an underlying reason why radicalization occurs against the West. Uh, and until this is addressed, uh, that will continue. So I just said, uh, I understand that the figure now is 50 billion. 50 billion is going, has just been allocated. I think that was this week. Yes. Israel would really not exist if it were not for uh, the support of America. So there is a huge obligation on behalf of America to make sure that Israel behaves as a responsible member of the international community. And um, one of the arguments that we make to our own Australian government is if we are the best friend of Israel, if that is the truth, then friends tell their friends when they're behaving badly. And if you don't do that, you're not really a true friend. A friend tells the other person how it really is, and we, we simply don't do that whenever there is a, another great land grab, we'd say nothing about it. When there's a massive violation that has occurred, we say nothing about it. Netanyahu this week has said that if in order for peace there would be the removal of some Israelis from the, the illegal settlement, it would amount to ethnic cleansing. Well, what <laughs> that's an extraordinary thing to say, given that the Palestinians are the ones who, since 1947, have experienced the ethnic cleansing. is just a ridiculous thing to say, but we just accept that. We do. Our government never seems to, under any circumstance, find a reason to say to Netanyahu and his government, 
that's too far. That's a bridge too far. You, that is the breaking of international law. We just don't say that. We have a tendency to want to water down language. So, as you know, uh, George Brandis and Julie Bishop last year were reluctant to use the word occupation in relation to the West Bank and particularly to East Jerusalem. And they're, they're reluctant to use the word illegal in relation to the settlements. Um, and they are illegal under international law because under international law, you're not allowed to move your civilian population into the area that you occupy. And now there are something like 600,000 Israelis who live on the West Bank. West Bank is 22% of the original Palestine. Israel is 78%. But even that apparently is not enough to them. They take day by day more of the 22% until eventually we're just left with tiny little isolated pockets of Palestinians who can't travel on the roads between the pockets. Their olive orchards have been bulldozed, etc., etc. It is really a disgraceful situation. And Israel has more or less annexed the whole of the, the Galilee so that the border with Jordan has been taken over really by Israel. This is Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Bishop George Browning who is the president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. And it's a fact too that so few Australians really understand the story of what is happening in Palestine and Israel because of the power of the, the media and as you said the power of the Israeli lobby. That is true, Jan, although the irony is that on the polls that we take, something like 60% of Australians, a very clear majority of Australians, understand there is abuse of human rights going on and and that the Palestinians are paying a price for a matter which is really not their responsibility. It is not Palestine's responsibility to make up for for Germany's, uh, Hitler's, Holocaust, etc. Why should the Palestinians be responsible for that? Why should the Palestinians have to give up the land that they've they've had for millennia, really? And the sad thing is that Jews and Arabs, Christians, lived in relative harmony in the Middle East for centuries. It's only the recent migration that has occurred of Jews from other parts of the world, particularly those with political Zionist views, that has has made made it so difficult. And the original whole relatively happy socialist kibbutz movement has almost totally disappeared. Netanyahu would be the most right-wing leader that Israel has ever had, and he now governs one of the most right-wing governments in the world, I suppose you'd have to say. And you've had a a few run-ins, I'd imagine, with the media over this, and just recently you've claimed that the ABC's distorted the facts to placate the Israeli lobby. Can you explain why? Yes, it happens on a number of fronts. The most recent one was in relation to Gaza. The Israeli lobby forced the ABC to retract the word occupation in relation to Gaza. And I suppose on the grounds that Sharon moved the, the final settlement I've forgotten the year now, out of Gaza, and Gaza technically doesn't have Israeli occupation. But the reality is that nothing can happen in Gaza unless Israel allows it to happen. So money can't flow. The reason why World Vision has at least closed temporarily its work in Gaza is not because it accepts an an abuse of the money being sent there, quite the contrary, but because Israel blocks the money from getting there. Building material can only get to Gaza if Israel allows it. The electricity 
uh, goes to Gaza when Israel allows it, etc., etc. There is nothing that can happen in Gaza, uh, either on the land or in the waterways in front of it in the Mediterranean, unless Israel allows it. It is occupied, and we had that battle with them. But we're going to have another one next year, because next year is the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Beersheba. Battle of Beersheba is not quite the same as Gallipoli, but it has a resonance in the sort of the historical tradition and beginnings of Australian identity. And the Battle of Beersheba was part of an Allied push against the Ottomans in 1917. And in order to defeat the Ottomans, the Allies did a deal with the Arabs to say, if you will align yourself uh, against the Ottomans with the Allies, then after the war we will actually give you some form of autonomy. Anyway, so Australia joined the battle, and famously with the horses and so on, as everybody knows with Beersheba. Uh, but now the Jewish community tries to argue the Battle of Beersheba was essentially the first attempt to set up the State of Israel. It had nothing to do with the State of Israel. That rewriting of history, if you like, has already, the attempt to do that has, has already occurred, and there's no question we will hear more about that next year, and we will do all in our power to make sure that the real story remains the story the public understands. Can you talk now about the boycott, divestment and sanction movement and your role in that and where you believe it's going? Yes. Oppressed people anywhere in the world don't have many options open to them. Uh, An option is violent resistance and the various intifadas have been examples of violent resistance to the occupation. Violence is always counterproductive because the oppressor always has the greater firepower. So, in a way, violent resistance to oppression really favours the oppressor, not the oppressed. And we should always do our best to talk people out of violent resistance. What is another alternative? Another alternative is, well, is just to accept it, lay down and submissively accept the oppression. And, of course, that's not realistic, not possible, not right not ethically or morally acceptable. What is another alternative? The other alternative really is non-violent resistance. And BDS is a form of non-violent resistance. It's a way of economically making the oppressor pay for their oppression. APAN is in favour of the, the BDS movement. And our focus in Australia is not on... Israel itself, funnily enough, and certainly not on Jews, it's on companies that actually make a profit from the illegal settlements on the West Bank. Some of these are military companies, some are like the Caterpillar Company that uh, uses its machinery to build the settlements. We support that. It is becoming a very effective movement, so much so that the Israeli lobby is doing all in its power to claim that a BDS is really an anti-Semitic movement, which of course it is not. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with that. I fear there may be attempts in Australia to make the BDS illegal so that if anybody supports BDS, then the government will actually take steps to undermine their activity. I've made it clear that if that legislation happened at a state or federal level, then uh, I, uh, as the leader of APAN, would actually purposely involve myself in civil disobedience in, in order that I can show that BDS is, is entirely justifiable. The B stands for boycott, 
D stands for disinvestment, and the S stands for sanction. Of course, sanction is only something governments can do, but boycott, any, any group can do. And disinvestment is also something which, which any group can argue for. I've been a strong supporter of disinvestment in relation to climate change, to say to people, if a bank or another organization is heavily invested in the, in the oil or coal industry, we should in, disinvest, and the church has disinvested from them. And the church uh, is actively part of BDS too. The United Church in particular disinvests from any company that is involved in the illegal settlements on the West Bank. Also, many churches in the United States are at the forefront of BDS. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think the Lutheran churches and certainly the Presbyterian church in the United States is, yes, uh, that is quite true. And that country has tried to ban it? Was that France? Uh, I don't know that a country has tried to ban it, but uh, certainly uh, regions or states have, and I think there's been an attempt to do that in New York. We had an argument with your Premier, the Victorian Premier, who praised, uh, I think it was the New York Mayor or somebody, for wanting to do that. We've written to Premier Andrews to say that uh, the reasons why we believe BDS is quite a legitimate movement, a non-violent form of resistance, and that uh, we will continue to be advocates for it, and uh, should he take steps to make it illegal or criminal in some way, we will, through civil disobedience, protest that. And of course it's not an organisation that people in the West have set up. It's been promoted within Palestine itself. Of course. It it is effective. That's why the Zionist movement is so, so, put so much energy into opposing it. If it wasn't effective, they wouldn't worry about it, but it it is effective. I've forgotten the exact figure, but uh, it's estimated that if Palestinians were genuinely allowed to be entrepreneurial, uh, if they were genuinely allowed to use their own assets and resources, they probably could become free of the charity of the rest of the world. But Israel denies them that possibility. So in a sense, Israel already has its own BDS against Palestine. If Israel exercises its own form of BDS, and uh, both the boycott and the disinvestment and the sanction against Palestine, then I don't think it's in a very good, very strong moral position to argue the rest of the world should not be enacting its own BDS in relation to itself. And of course, the major result of that sanctions against the Palestinians is you have Israel, one of the most powerful countries, particularly in that area of the world, and modern cities, most of the citizens relatively well off, yet very few Palestinians can aspire to much more than day-to-day existence. Exactly, and... Um the sanctions against uh, Palestinians uh, are, are almost total. There have been some high, high uh, publicity examples of it in terms of Palestinian sports people who have not been allowed out either to Olympic Games or to play in the Palestinian soccer team in a, when it toured Australia, etc. It's beyond economics. It actually affects the whole way of life, uh, the culture and the tradition of people. I was there last year with my wife and um, we travelled with Palestinian friends and the male of the family was born in Israel. The female of the family, they're both Arabs, both Palestinians. The female was born in Jordan. Because of that, they had two different sets of papers. So at every checkpoint, as a family, they have to divide. One has to go through one particular checkpoint, and it, which that's the one who's born in Jordan, goes through a, a much more severe form of humiliation than the guy who's born in Israel. 
that, that kind of behaviour of dividing and intimidating goes on in every aspect of their lives. What do the Palestinians say to you about what they see as the, the lack of support that they've had over those years from people in the West? Well, so that's a very good question, Jan. First of all, that they very much honour, treasure, support when they have it of the West, and particularly the Christian West. And um, when I was there last, they said, you must do all in your power to ensure that the, the Christians do not abandon us, because the Christian community in Palestine is, is severely reduced, not because of Islam, but because of Jewish oppression. And it's easier for a Christian to migrate out of Palestine than it is for a Muslim, because Christians have contacts in, with the, through their churches in various parts of the world. So the, the number of Christian Palestinians used to be you know, a very significant proportion of the Palestinian community. It's now, I wouldn't say it's negligible, but it's pretty small. Maintaining that Christian presence is important. When I was there in May, June last year, I went to the Palestinian parliament, met the, Pal met the parliamentarians, and afterwards I was taken to the steps of the parliament and asked if I would pray for the parliament and for Palestine on the steps of, of, uh, of the parliament in Ramallah. So I've got this extraordinary experience of being a Christian leader, an Anglican bishop, being asked by the Muslim community to pray for Palestine. Abbas has just actually made Easter a national holiday for all Palestinians, by the way. The line that is often given that Palestine is an anathema place to Christians is just absolute nonsense. It's really the reverse. Jerusalem itself, when I was there last year, I met the Orthodox Patriarch and the Armenian Patriarch and the Lutheran Bishop and the, of course, the Anglican Bishop. And they all spoke of it, how it is becoming increasingly more and more difficult to exercise a Christian presence and, and to be host to Christian pilgrimages in Jerusalem because the place is becoming more and more Judaized all the time. There are more and more restrictions on what Christians can do. And that is a great worry to them. This might sound naive, but I do believe that in the end, goodness says when the end is, but in the end, truth wins out and justice prevails. But in the meantime, the suffering of the Palestinians needs to be known, recognized, and responded to by the world. And at the same time, for common sense to prevail, that justice for the Palestinians ultimately means greater security for Israel, not the other way around. It's injustice to the Palestinians that causes Israel to remain, and it will in perpetuity remain frightened of every shadow until justice can prevail. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for calling. And that was Bishop George Browning, who is the current president of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Coming up to five o'clock, got another hour to go. I'll be speaking to Bob Phelps about genetic modification issues, talking about cultural genocide in Sri Lanka, Jacob Grick, part two of Pine Gap, and Tim Anderson talking about the recent massacre in Syria. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
they have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. On the phone now is Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, to talk about things GM and related issues. First up, Bob, the merger between Bayer and Monsanto is going to go ahead. What I'd like you to do first is talk about the very dark history of both those companies. Yes, there is indeed. Bayer is about 150 years old and Monsanto just over a century old and uh, they've been engaged in both war and peace activities uh, over their lifetimes, uh, particularly during the First and Second World Wars, Vietnam as well. Gas was uh, one of the deadly weapons in the First World War, of course, and as it was in the Second World War, but in different contexts. In the First World War, of course, soldiers were gassed with mustard gas and various other nasties. Many of them died or were permanently injured. It was a tragedy, really, for those uh, soldiers in the trenches in, in Europe. In the Second World War, of course, Bayer was involved in supplying gas for the gas chambers that uh, gassed six million Jews and other dissident groups in the German and other European communities, such as gays and Rom. Of course, they were reconstructed after the Second World War, but, of course, the uh, management and ownership of those companies didn't really change substantially, and I'd say, too, that their um, overall behaviour as corporate entities really didn't improve a great deal. They've been in the business of producing agrochemicals since the Second World War, and now we've got our farming worldwide dependent on the production and use of those same chemicals that were produced for warfare were then turned into peaceful chemicals as the nuclear weapons were as well into nuclear power stations to justify their continued use. And so since the Second World War, Bayer and Monsanto have continued to make war on the environment, particularly Monsanto in Vietnam, of course, was the owner and controller of Agent Orange, which was a mixture of 2,4-D, 2,4-5-T and other herbicides, which were sprayed very, very extensively across the Vietnamese landscape to destroy the forests where uh, the US military assumed that the uh, Vietnamese were hiding with terrible consequences both for those who were given the job of spraying them, the veterans, uh, Australians, Americans and others who are still having health issues themselves and among their children today and of course among the Vietnamese whose children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren are still having enormous health problems including birth defects and a range of other things particularly from the dioxins which are in the Agent Orange that Monsanto knew perfectly well were there, knew would have impacts on human and animal health as well as killing plants. Dioxins, are they still in production? Well, dioxin is a, uh, a side product of the production of many chemicals. They would like to minimise it or reduce it to zero if they could, but dioxin-contaminated chemicals are still out there being used. You know, we should just stop because dioxin is so deadly to uh, human and animal health. And what's Bayer up to at the moment? We sort of hear of them as a, a pharmaceutical company you know, producing all these wonder, wonder drugs, but what actually are they now? After Aventus went broke, Aventus had been involved in crop work in the 1990s and they had the Starlink corn 
recall, which cost them a billion dollars, and Aventus went out of business. And at that time, Bayer bought up Aventus Crop Science, and it became Bayer Crop Science. And so it's really just since about 2000 that Bayer has been heavily involved, not only in um, pharmaceuticals and agrochemicals, but also in the genetic engineering uh, industry as well. So it's now a conglomerate. Yes, of course, including its very substantial holdings in pharmaceuticals for human and animal health, but as well as that in the ownership and control of the food supply through the production of agrochemicals, the ownership of seed and so on. And now with the takeover of Monsanto, they will, between them, become the uh, biggest seed owner and agrochemical producer in the world. Ahead, incidentally, of only two other major conglomerates, ChemChina, a very big Chinese agrochemical company uh, is doing a deal to buy the Swiss company Syngenta, so that will be a, another huge conglomerate, almost as large as Bayer and Monsanto when they're joined together. Earlier we saw Dow and DuPont also merge, and uh, they are the third big player in the uh, seed business and in the agrochemicals, as well as their other activities. And then we've got BASF, which is primarily still in agrochemicals, and I think in due course will be gobbled up by one of the other three big players. The problem of having so few owners and controllers of the world's food supply through agrochemicals and the ownership of both genetically engineered and conventional seed is that uh, they're already acting as a cartel, jacking up prices, cross-licensing each other and generally exercising their muscle to maximise their profits and not to feed the people of the world. This is going to be a major problem for the future, which a number of countries are looking at, whether anything will be done, because uh, we don't know, because these companies collectively are much bigger than the national uh, budgets of most uh, countries in the world. They really are enormous entities and they exercise unreasonable power and control as well. So is it a bit late for alarm bells to be ringing? They should have been ringing years ago. Well, I think they should have, yes. Um, for instance, when Monsanto, about a decade ago, bought Seminus Seeds, which was then the largest seed company in the world with about 40% share of the market, uh, I think that should have been nipped in the bud as well because um, as a result of that and the takeover by the majors, Bayer, Monsanto, Dow and DuPont of really some 70% of all the seed in the world, uh, commercial seed is now owned and controlled by those few entities. They play fast and loose with the price of the seed as well as the chemicals and uh, in this discussion about the coalescence of Bayer and Monsanto. In fact, the National Farmers Federation has come out expressing concerns precisely because they have no control over the, the price of inputs, uh, chemicals, seed, fertilisers, machinery, so on, that industrial agriculture depends on. So our own National Farmers Federation is uh, saying that they've got major concerns, but like everybody else, it's very unclear whether they or uh, a national competition, a consumer and competition commission, the ACCC, can or actually will do anything about saying, no, we're not going to allow that merger to occur in Australia. Does this merger mean another big push for GM? I think it will. It's hard to say how it will go because really the genetic manipulation technologies that have been around since the 20th century and now for th some 30 years clearly have run out of steam. They're only capable of manipulating 
one gene at a time. They haven't been able to deliver on their promises of drought and salt tolerance, more nutritious food and a range of other claims that they made which were going to be so wonderful like nitrogen fixation in grains for instance to make them more like peas and beans which can fix nitrogen from the air and put fertiliser into the soil. Those promises haven't come true essentially because of shortcomings in the genetic manipulation technologies that we're familiar with. However, there is now a new crop of GM techniques coming along. Again, they're making the same kinds of promises that they made previously. Whether the new so-called gene editing techniques will be a success or failure is hard to tell at this early stage. But these companies, I'm sure, will be uh, picking up these new techniques, will be investing money in research and development. Again, will be attempting to recapture the market for genetically manipulated crops and foods. Is there any estimate of the amount of money that they have spent on trying to bring in GMs all over the world? There, there aren't any clear figures, but it's got to be in the range of $100 billion up. And who's put all this money in? Well, governments and private industry. More recently, the privates like Monsanto have been spending certainly in excess of a billion dollars a year each on trying to make genetically manipulated crops work without much success. But of course, because they're marketing the seeds and chemicals as a package, particularly the herbicide-tolerant crop plants, they've been able to engineer for themselves a maximisation of profits. And uh, we see, for instance, here in Australia that when a cotton grower grows GM cotton, as most of them now do, Monsanto will charge... Uh, between 315 and $401 per hectare of cotton. The cotton growers say that they've been able to reduce the amount of synthetic chemicals that they've had to buy from the same companies, incidentally, as a result of introducing the GM crops. But it's still the case that whether you buy the chemicals or you buy the genetically manipulated seed, the company still reaps those uh, enormous profits for work that's basically done by public sector breeders in Australia in the case of cotton. Our scientists do the work and Monsanto collects the profits. What are GMOs doing to the ecology? I'm thinking about insects and things like that bring in these new methods of farming. Well there's still quite a debate about that and exactly what the um, impacts are is, is rather unclear. The BT toxins which are supposed to be produced in some of the GM crops are supposed to target only the caterpillars of certain moth species, the so-called Lepidoptera. Moths and their caterpillars do eat canola, cotton, soybean and corn, but whether or not they've actually been just targeting those species is unclear. It's uh, part of the debate among ecologists. But the other thing is that when you take out those caterpillars, you then encourage other minor insects such as aphids and myrids which are grazing there in small numbers to suddenly balloon and this also introduces a new pest into the scene which requires control as well so the spraying of more chemicals um, appears to be inevitable we have now got our office of gene technology regulator and food standards australia new zealand considering the introduction of new crops and foods which will have resistance to three synthetic herbicides, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, glufosinate, which is the active ingredient in the Bayer product Liberty, and dicamba, which is a very old herbicide, 
been used for many, many years, very persistent in the environment and pretty toxic. And these new crop plants are going to resist being sprayed with those three chemicals at least. And in some cases, you can add 2,4-D to that picture as well. These arguments about we're going to reduce chemical burden and we're going to uh, be more environmentally friendly are very vexed indeed. And it's as a result of a fight back from nature, particularly that uh, the weeds have become tolerant of being sprayed with Roundup in particular, that we now see uh, the companies and farmers introducing these uh, more toxic mixes of sprays in order to, uh, as they say, manage the environment, the farm environment, in order to uh, make it productive and to kill everything except the crop plant. There is great concern in many places about the possible demise of bees. Can we link that to what you've been talking about? The bee picture is very complicated as well, and we are very dependent on um, bees, of course. There are still multiple theories about what it is causing colony collapse disease, whether it's the varroa mite, which is now rampant in several parts of the world, whether it's um, neonicotinoid pesticides, uh, whether it's genetically engineered crop plants, or a multiplicity of factors, including these. It's just not clear in industrial systems what the impacts on sensitive organisms like bees might be, and I think it's still being worked on and the jury is still out on exactly what it is. But my suspicion is that it is a multiple factor. You know, when you lower the resistance, we know from our own experience, when you lower the resistance of an organism, then it makes it more susceptible to being becoming sick as a result of exposure to either environmental factors to the things that it feeds on. For instance, uh, the latest information from the USA is that there are um, residues of Roundup residues extensively in honey. The US Food and Drug Administration hadn't previously tested pesticides, residues, particularly glyphosate, for a number of decades until this year. They have not set um, any lower limits, so it's zero, and they've found Roundup residues in every test that's been done. So exactly what those impacts would be, still hard to say, but we know that the chemical residues are out there, both in the, in the food supply for our bees and in the food supply for ourselves, and uh, this should be the focus of quite a bit of regulatory attention and much stricter controls. But, of course, our regulators sit on their hands. They serve the interests of the agrochemical and GM industries and uh, it's another campaign that we need to uh, be engaged in. You mentioned before moving on to gene editing. Can you explain again what that means? Well, gene editing is um, a new set of techniques which instead of introducing genetic material from another organism as traditional genetic manipulation has done, say, for instance, a fish gene into a tomato to... Um, experimentally give it the tomato plant greater resistance to to cold tolerant uh, cold situations to frost and so on instead of doing that the new gene editing techniques cut and uh, reconstitute dna within an organism itself the proponents of these new techniques are saying this is not genetic manipulation as it's been defined by our regulators and that's certainly true in the gene technology act the activity of 
genetic manipulation and the definition of its products really comes down to introducing foreign DNA from another organism into the target species. Whereas they're saying the new gene editing techniques, because they don't introduce anything new and we're just fixing up problems, we're just manipulating within the same species, shouldn't be defined as uh, genetic manipulation and shouldn't be regulated. This simply ignores the fact that uh, when you make a new organism that hasn't existed before, that uh, you're using an imperfect technology, there is collateral damage uh, within the organism's genetic structure. You don't know in advance what results you're going to get. The technology, like all technologies, is not nearly as precise as is claimed. In our view, all of the new gene editing techniques must come under the control and assessment of our regulators and indeed we already see that to take a precautionary approach a number of universities and other research institutions are saying regardless of what the regulator decides about what's going to be regulated or not we are going to regard gene editing as a new genetic manipulation technology and we are going to impose our own rules and regulations on it and I think that's a very, very good course to take because, of course, in the end run, the regulator has an overview of what's going on in genetic manipulation, but the institutional biosafety committees, which operate within our research institutions like CSIRO and the universities, uh, are the ones who are ultimately responsible for uh, what actually happens on the ground. So it is good that they seem to be taking a precautionary approach, and we hope that they all will do that and encourage the regulator as well to regard the new techniques as genetic manipulation, to amend the uh, definition of genetic manipulation in the Act and to embrace these things. This is an ongoing debate at the moment. The regulators said that uh, they are consulting experts. Of course, they're not consulting the public yet. They're going to put out some sort of discussion paper later. By then, I imagine that they'll try to make it a fait accompli over which we have no control. So we are engaged in a campaign to try and ensure that uh, the new gene editing techniques get the regulation that is warranted for them. Are they also mucking around with animals? I don't know what's going on in that space, really. Uh, there certainly is a lot of talk about it, and CSIRO convened a meeting about two years ago to discuss how they could promote animal gene technology. But this was prior to the emergence of the current crop of new gene editing techniques, so I'm not sure at this stage exactly what's happening. They'd certainly like to do it if they could. Of course, artificial insemination embryo selection, a whole raft of other technologies are already being done in relation to animals, which are not, again, defined as genetic engineering or genetic manipulation, but border on certainly major interventions to make animals more productive, to be able to survive in more confined environments, and to be generally better able to withstand living in the industrial farming model. That has been a trend that's been going on for a long, long time. And, of course, we see it at its worst in things like battery hens, which are going to be born, live and die in 42 days in a space um, the size of a piece of A4 paper. Yet another reason to be a vegetarian or a vegan. Just finally, Bob, the Ord River Scheme. It was promoted for many, many years. It was going to be the, the saviour of agriculture for the for Australia. A voice from the past, Wilson Tucky, 
has come out and blamed the former Labor government for not allowing GM there. That's the whole problem, he says. Well, you know, it's just another <laughs> kite, really, and Tucky can say what he likes, but the order of his scheme is disrespectful of the ord environment, you know. We can't just take industrial agriculture and put it where we like and think that the environment can be beaten into submission. Cotton was taken in the 1990s to the ord. It wasn't a success. They sprayed the cotton with every conceivable chemical to try to get it to survive, and it was eaten alive. So then, um, later on, they brought over the uh, genetically manipulated cotton and attempted to have a go at that. And again, it didn't fly. It, it simply couldn't be a big enough industry to justify building the infrastructure such as the um, milling machines which would be needed to process cotton after it was grown. So it was just uneconomic. They had to transport the cotton over to the east. It was only viable for one year because the cotton prices were so high and farmers then didn't want to grow it. So it's just um, a complete furphy to say that uh, the refusal to allow GM cotton caused the ord to collapse, as Tucky has said. It's just ridiculous because farmers under West Australian law are still perfectly free to grow GM cotton as much as they like and they haven't chosen to grow it. It's not a success. It's just another insult to the ord environment. And the whole show should really be shut down and uh, given back to um, Indigenous people to manage as, as a natural landscape, in my opinion. What remains of the project? Well, there's still um, broadacre crops being grown there, but things that can survive under those conditions, whether it will actually prove to be economically viable, which ultimately is the measure of the success or failure of any agricultural enterprise, remains to be seen. But for the moment certainly no genetically manipulated or conventional cotton over there and uh, I think Tucky is just having a bit of a tantrum really. He's had a few of those hasn't he? <laughs> yes he, he was renowned for them. He certainly was and that's Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. I'm Helen Razor but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again dear? 855 I told you Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. It is over seven years since the end of the 26-year-long civil war in Sri Lanka. In a speech earlier this year, the new president, Sarasena, relating to the referendum vote later this year, said, We will devolve power to the people as a whole. Nobody is trying to take anything away from the Sinhalese to give to the Tamils. What we are trying to do is give something more to everyone. But as far as the minority Tamils in the north and the northeast, nothing could be further than the truth, as explained in a paper prepared by the British Tamils Forum in June this year, titled Land Grab and Cultural Genocide of the Tamil Homeland in Sri Lanka. Dr Brian Sinimaratna, long-time human rights activist and advocate for the Tamil population of his birthplace, Sri Lanka, has read the paper. First, Brian, who are those who identify as the British Tamils Forum? The British Tamil Forum is the largest Tamil organisation in the United Kingdom. It was set up about 2006 
and is working to address the root causes of the conflict in Sri Lanka, which is by no means settled. Just crushing the Tamil Tigers is not uh, settling the conflict. And uh, the BTF is working through international justice mechanisms to bring truth and justice to the victims of war and to bring to an end the entrenched culture of impunity in Sri Lanka. It has been very active. I think in one of the marches that it organized in uh, London, there were 100,000 people who marched through London. So they've been very active, but by far the most important publication they have ever produced is this outstanding publication in June 2016 called Land Grab and Cultural Genocide of the Tamil Homelands in Sri Lanka. I don't think any other group anywhere in the world has done such a detailed study of an area, really, which is not accessible to many people despite the change in government. And what did they set out to either prove or disprove? Quite an extraordinary publication, the like of which I have never seen. Firstly, it deals with the land occupied by the armed forces, uh, almost all Sinhalese, in the Tamil North and the East of Sri Lanka. And it gives the statistics. I had a vague idea what the statistics were, but here are the actual figures. Under the previous president, Mahindra Rajapaksa, there were 69,992 acres of land belonging to the Tamil people taken over by the armed forces. After the advent of the current president, Sirisena, in 2015, January, that 69,992 acres has reduced to 67,427, which is only a 3.6% decrease. is the guy who was elected, actually, because of the votes he got from the Tamil people in the north and the east. Had the Tamil people not voted for him or voted for the other side, even if they had just not voted at all, Sirisena would have ended up, as he says, six feet underground, as uh, what happened to his predecessor, General Sarath Fonseca, who contested uh, Rajapaksa, and the Tamil people boycotted the election, and uh, Fonseca ended up in jail. So one would have thought that having been elected on the backs, on the votes of the Tamil people, he would have some gratitude. Nothing of the sort. He produced a 100-day program soon after he was elected. The wondrous thing that he was going to do, the word Tamil was not even mentioned. But aside from that, he has, absolute, he has done absolutely nothing. And I have said that the change from Rajapaksa to Sirisena, uh, where the Tamil people are concerned, is only a name change and no more. But what this paper has shown is the actual area that has been that is still being occupied by the armed forces the next is what they call buddhistization that's a new word which is to install buddhist temples and shrines in the uh, tamil north and the east where there are no buddhists except for the armed forces if you want photographs this paper has got it all there are nearly 50 photographs of Buddhist shrines and statues in the Tamil North and the East that have been erected by the armed forces and uh, 
and the government. And these maps are courtesy of Google Street Maps? Uh, yes. The third thing is as serious, uh, if not more serious, is the business activities of the armed forces. The armed forces are engaged in non-military activity, running holiday resorts, farms, restaurants, innumerable cafes, and even a golf course. All of this has been documented in some 25 photographs which are in this uh, paper. I might add, actually, that uh, this paper is accessible on Google. If you go into Google and type land grab and cultural genocide, you'll get the whole paper. Interestingly, just below this on Google is my paper titled, If This Is Not Genocide, Then What Is It? I'll deal with that in a minute. They conclude the first three chapters by saying that the land grab activity is continuing under the present government and that the long-term objective is to wipe out the Tamil homelands in the north and the east and replace them with a Sinhalese Buddhist state. And that unless the international community and the United Nations take immediate action to appoint permanent field monitoring units in the Tamil North and the East, there will be nothing left on the Tamil people. Certainly, the Tamil homelands would be wiped off. Can I go through these three areas with you, Brian? The yes. First, the, the, the area that the, the military have taken over. Yes. Rural and urban, where have the people gone? The people are hanging around there with no place to go. They're staying with relatives or under trees or whatever. But they can't go back to their homes because their homes are all taken. There are nearly 100,000 people with no homes to go to because their homes are illegally occupied by the military. My question has always been, the war is over, the Tamil Tigers have been crushed. What is the rationale or justification to have 250,000 people in the Sri Lankan armed forces who is the enemy? And that has not been answered. The enemy, I guess, are people like uh, you and I who oppose what, uh, what is happening in the uh, north and the east of the country. How much of those areas being taken over would have been food-producing areas for the oh, Tamils? At least 50%. There's an appendix called the Valikamam High Security Zone. That answers your question, because there are a series of photographs taken by air to show the sort of changes that have occurred in the food-producing area. This Valikamam is the northern part of the Jaffna Peninsula. It's a very fertile area. I know it very well. I've been there. And that's all taken and converted into uh, almost permanent military barracks. Does this mean that fishing villages have been taken over oh, as yes. well? Not only fishing, but fishing and agriculture. You see, the two main occupations in the north and the east is fishing and agriculture. Neither of them is fish, uh, possible. The fishermen have been taken off from the coast and relocated 20, 25 kilometers inland where there is no sea. And you can't carry a boat every day for 25 kilometers to go fishing, apart from the restriction they have put on Tamil people fishing. They have bought Sinhalese fishermen from the south 
to do the fishing, and the Tamils are allowed to fish only at certain times of the day. Oh, this is definitely discrimination in a in a big way. When you say Buddhization, I hope I'm saying that word correctly, what's happened to the, the churches and the temples that were there for the people? Churches and Hindu temples, a lot of them have been destroyed and not rebuilt, but Buddhist temples place, uh, built where Hindu temples were and Christian shrines. There is no question about it. The idea is to wipe out both Christianity and Hinduism from the north and replace it by Buddhist shrines and statues. The businesses that the military control, and it's not just the militaries, it's the air force, it's all the armed forces, isn't it? Ah, yes. You see, Sri Lanka is already divided, uh, not divided the way that the Tamils want, but divided into uh, the north and the east under the military. The government is not involved in the administration there. It's the military uh, and the police. It's a police state, and the rest of the country, which is under the government. Uh, very few people realize that Sri Lanka is divided, divided in the most obscene fashion and most unacceptable fashion, with the government of Sri Lanka running the south of the country and the military running the north and the east. Talk more about the businesses that they've got there and, and where they're getting people to come, the tourists. You say there's tourist developments there. Where are the tourists coming from? The tourists are coming from all over the world because they are advertising Sri Lanka as a peaceful, wonderful place to visit. And a lot of this is advertisement done by, of all places, the Ministry of Defence. What the Ministry of Defence has to do with tourism, God only knows, but it's the Ministry of Defence and others, of course. The advertising, right, left and centre, attracting tourists, and I think they mainly come from Europe. And while this is going on, what's happening to the, the Tamil people themselves? Are people still being picked off the streets and taken into custody? Yes, uh, that is going on. But the main thing that's going on is that they are simply withering away. Uh, I'm somewhat critical of this title of this paper, Land Grab and Cultural Genocide. It's not cultural genocide alone, for sure it is. But there is physical genocide cultural genocide, educational genocide, economic genocide, religious and structural. I told you that you can get this paper on Google. The paper just below this, if you type out land grab and cultural genocide of the Tamil homelands, you will get onto this paper. Just below that, the next article is by me. And that says if this is not genocide, then what is it? And I have made the case that this is a lot more extensive than cultural genocide. In fact, I will be reviewing this paper, and I will point that out, that the, uh, the only regret I have about this paper is the word cultural genocide, because it's a lot more than cultural genocide. And that was human rights activist Dr. Brian Sinuaretna. Earlier this morning, I spoke to Dr. Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria Australia, and began by quoting the Defence Department. Australian aircraft were involved in a US-led coalition operation which killed dozens of Assyrian soldiers who were apparently mistaken for Islamic State fighters. And said next that there are a lot of questions in that and a lot of answers are needed. Yes, the UK has also admitted that they were involved in the operation in some way too. 
and the, the death toll is now around 90, uh, there's 90, around 90 soldiers killed. There's been quite a few interviews with soldiers who escaped and uh, also the funerals of the ones that were killed. Uh, that's coming through to the, the images, the video of that. And Syria has announced that it's uh, convinced that the attack was deliberate and pre-planned. The Russians yesterday were also saying that Ambassador Churkin in the UN was saying that a lot of circumstances led them to believe that it was a deliberate attack and not a accidental attack. We've got, I think it was Turnbull saying, oh, it's only a small area about the size of Victoria. There's, there's all these planes of all these different countries and there's this and there's that. No wonder there's a mistake. That, that's not good enough, is it? No, of course it's not good enough. When they bomb countries, they talk about their surgical strikes, precision strikes that are drone attacks on individual people and so on. And uh, indeed, they had drone surveillance of the area before the attacks. So they have been carrying out video surveillance of that specific area. They've been there before. They haven't uh, seriously attacked uh, ISIS in that area before, but they've been there uh, observing. And up until now, they hadn't made a direct attack on the Syrian army. So the Syrian army wasn't expecting that attack at all. It was a surprise, treacherous attack. I thought there was a ceasefire. There's a ceasefire which ended. The Syrians now say the ceasefire is over. That period has ended. They're not renewing it. They said that none of the terrorist groups backed by the US and others observed even a single element of that deal. They'd listed 300 violations, for example, and were simply using it to consolidate their forces. And those uh, terrorist groups, the al-Nusra uh, linked ones around Aleppo and Hama are planning attacks now. They've got several thousand there uh, planning an attack now. So the war is resuming without really any effort at all on the part of the US-backed groups. You remember the US-backed groups actually rejected the ceasefire from the very beginning, but the US kept insisting that the, the Russians and the Syrians had to observe what their proxy militia weren't observing. And what has to be continually emphasised is the fact that US, UK, Australian planes flying, bombing in Syrian airspace are doing it illegally. It's all completely illegal, and that's something that a number of us have been writing to the Australian ministers, the foreign minister, Bishop, and others, saying that when Australian officials get uh, indicted or called before a tribunal, how is the government going to answer that request that they were illegally in the country to start with? That really destroys any possible claim of accidents or good intentions, basically. If you were there illegally and you kill someone, all of the defences about things being accidental and unplanned and so on like that go out the window because you've gone there in bad faith uh, with weapons and you've killed people. And really the whole, all of the arguments about being manslaughter, your actions as opposed to murder, disappear. You shouldn't have been there in the first place. And how is the Australian government going to address that? Are they going to defend people who are indicted for these war crimes, this massacre, in the future? Because it's not going to go away. People aren't going to forget that. And in addition to that, we should uh, point out that the game has now changed there. Not only is the goodwill being destroyed by that massacre so that there won't be an extension of the ceasefire coming days, but that uh, the Syrian and the Russian forces are now opening fire on any aircraft, any enemy aircraft in that area. So around Derizur, they've already opened fire on US drones, and around Kanetra near Israel, they've opened fire on Israel drones. They've shot down two Israeli aircraft there. That wasn't happening before. That level of confrontation didn't exist. Now it does exist. And what's the Israeli aircraft doing there? Israeli aircraft have been backing up 
the al-Qaeda groups around um, Kanaitra and Dara for many years now, basically, and, and by and large they've done it covertly, but there's a lot of video and other evidence that's come out of the collaboration. It's, but they've been very open about taking jihadist soldiers of any of the groups, ISIS, al-Qaeda, any of the other ones, into Israeli hospital. They specifically, the Israeli government has specifically denied that there's any distinction between groups. They'll treat them all, all of the anti-Syrian groups, patch them up in hospital and send them back. But the, the armed support has been going on there for some time. And when there's been Israeli airstrikes, as well as missile strikes, they've been really to try and bolster or boost the morale of the, the terror groups that are in that area around the border of the occupied Golan. Just comment on the US ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, who chastised Russia for its move on this. It was an amazing speech of hers. It's a very weak position to admit a very serious war crime and then when you're challenged on it at all, your explanation is challenged, and that's what happened, really, that the Russians said this wasn't accidental, to then attack and try and blame someone else. It shows that the apology is not sincere. The idea of an accidental attack is not sincere. There's no maturity or accepting of responsibility there. It's a clear indication that you're going to commit that sort of crime again. No contrition whatsoever. So it's a weak, immature response. It's, of course, it's undiplomatic too, but it means that the other side has got a very clear signal that there's no contrition, there's no real apology there at all. And that's why there's going to be a confrontation between those forces, those armed forces in Syria. I mean, the first stage is clearly enough that there's going to be confrontation in the air if the US puts any aircraft up near Syria and Russian facilities. And the second step is going to be that there's going to be a military exclusion of the US operations in Syria. That's coming down the line unless the US changes its course. Is there any role for the UN? There is, but the problem is that the UN is either deadlocked or operating really with the effectively as an arm of the of the big powers that are against Syria. So there's not really a chance of a resolution there. You'd think there would be. That's what the Security Council was set up for. It was set up to prevent war. And instead, really, they've been taking the partisan side, in the most case, or the Secretary-General, let's say, the representatives of the Secretary-General, the, the current uh, representative of the Secretary-General, de Mistura, has really been completely an agent of the US and the UK and France and the others there, basically. So that, there's the problem with the structure of the UN. And the non-aligned movement was saying that last week in Venezuela, there was a summit. Uh, people may have missed it, but there was a summit of the 120-nation group, the non-aligned movement. It's the biggest international group after the UN. And they've been commenting on these interventions, these proxy wars that are going on in Latin America, remember, as well as in the Middle East, and saying that the, the UN has to be restructured, and the, and the centre of that has to be the UN Security Council. And in that, both Russia and China, who aren't members of the, the non-aligned movement, uh, agree with them. Finally, Tim, the reaction by the Australian government and the Defence Department. They've really mirrored the, the US position. They've, they came out and admitted, you would think that might have been to their credit, they've admitted the crime, but they think that saying that is, I'm talking about the Dairy Zoo massacre, but simply saying that is not enough. You can't just say, oh, sorry, we, we never meant to hurt anyone there. And they bombed at least 200 soldiers, killed half of them, wounded another half of them. It's not sufficient to say, we're sorry, we didn't really mean to do that. You were there illegally in the country. They've echoed the type of reaction of the US ambassador to power by saying that, uh, trying to lash out and blame Russia for something or other when in the middle of admitting their, 
their guilt for that massacre. There really has to be some accountability for that massacre because it was treacherous, a treacherous act. It wasn't even, you know, it was something that was a, it was a surprise attack because there was this type of ceasefire agreement and the US has just destroyed so much goodwill. I mean, the diplomacy in this conflict is, is very important, but they've really destroyed a lot of the thin threads of goodwill that were there to keep the diplomatic process going and, and they've invited much more direct confrontation. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that was Dr Tim Anderson on a, a fairly scratchy phone line from Sydney this morning. Now part two of my interview with renegade activist Jacob Breck looking at the past and present reality of the US-Australia spy base Pine Gap in Central Australia. We concluded part one with Jacob speaking about the impact on people in the US directing drones to kill people thousands of kilometres away. The mental effect that it's having on these people, I think, is something that we're not going to really have our heads around for another dozen years. But it, it can't be doing them any good when you look at what's been happening to soldiers who have been in the field. And the soldiers who have been in the field who are committing suicide, they're not just soldiers who saw atrocities in foreign countries. Some of them were soldiers who never fought in a foreign war but still put up with the brutality and the bastardisation of life in the Australian military. And as that as well is now coming out. We're talking about, you know, there's all kinds of um, royal commissions and investigations into abuse within things like the Catholic Church and the, and the Anglican Church, but when you look at the bastardisation and the abuse and the rapes that are happening within the military, it's not a point where you have to go over and kill someone in a third world country before you're totally headshot where you commit suicide. I think you mentioned this before about Pine Gap, the multi-beam antenna mm. that um, has the potential to block out the internet. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, well, the multi-beam antenna, they call the toroid antenna. People will be familiar with the look of Pine Gap and different US bases, even things at Watsonia. There are little what they call radomes. Now, inside every one of those radomes is a satellite dish, which looks... Apart from questions of scale, not a hell of a lot difference to the Foxtel dishes you see on people's on some people's roofs. The reason they're inside these radomes is twofold. First of all, to protect it somewhat from the elements, but mainly to disguise the area it's pointing at, because each one of these satellite dishes points to one satellite. And if you could see where it was pointing, then you'd know which satellite it was intercepting. Now, they've got this new satellite dish that they call a toroid dish, and it's called a toroid dish because if you imagine a donut and the bottom third sliced off a donut, so it's like it's like a bit of a scoop, I guess, um, like a gravy boat or something like that, it can intercept an angle of 70 degrees of the Van Allen belt where all the stationary satellites are sitting. So rather than just have one satellite, it can intercept and communicate two ways, which also means control, an arc of 70 degrees every satellite within that arc. So from a satellite disk looking at one satellite to looking at 35 satellites, because basically around the Van Allen belt you've got a satellite every two degrees, although they're talking now about stretching it out so they're more of an echelon sort of shape where they're going out and coming in, so you'll have one every one degree. And what that means is by they could control, potentially control every satellite in a 70-degree arc across the heavens. 
Does Pine Grove have a role in the census? Probably not a direct role. However, I don't know who's doing the census in Australia. I believe it's all been done in-house. But we do know that in the United States, Canada and the United Kingdom, Lockheed Martin ran all the census communications and IT infrastructure. (laughs) Maybe if Lockheed Martin ran it, it wouldn't have collapsed so so effectively. (laughs) I don't know. But what we do know and how Pine Gap is involved is that they say that the census will be checked against other information sources. Now, what other information sources? That means that they're intercepting our communications. And we also know that because it's all the information about Australian citizens being kept in one place by government department, that the Australian government at Pine Gap will have access to all this information, which means that automatically the NSA has access to all the information, the GCHQ in the UK has all the access to information, and of course, as we said earlier, the Israelis have all all the access to communications. So while Pine Gap probably wasn't involved directly in the census, it didn't need to because it was just a way of other government organisations collecting all this information on behalf of of who knows. Now, I, I fully understand the need of an Australian government to have information on its citizens, where people, how people get to work, where people live, all these kind of things help a government to provide services, even in my, you know, in a very, very microcosm in my own job at Trades Hall. I find that if I know when people are coming in and out of their offices, how many cars they drive, how often they're there on a weekend, and that helps me know when to turn the heaters on and off, when the garbage has to be collected, when the locks have to be changed, and all this kind of thing. I understand the need for information to run, to run services. But the problem is when you have a government who is so hand-in-glove with the military agencies that, you know, we have a situation where it's just been cancelled because of a, a whole lot of cost overruns, we believe. But the Australian Federal Police were just using the same database system to keep track of all its people that the Israeli government was using to keep track of so-called Palestinian terrorists. So you have a situation where our own government, our own police services, are using information which treats us as terrorists or is designed as if we were terrorists, I'm very reluctant to provide too much information to these governments. I mean, I know they get it anyway, but there's a difference between them getting it and us giving it to them on a plate. And are we just one of many Western countries linked into the US in the sense that Pine Gap and those other places link us in? Yeah, For a start, we're part of what's called the Five Eyes Defence Agreement, which is what I call the White English-Speaking Men's Club. It started during World War II as, I think, the Yakuza or Brussia Agreement. Then it went to the Yakuza, and then it's now um, the Five Eyes, which is the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And there is pure defence intelligence sharing between these five countries. Um, with the United States being the first party. So everyone goes through the United States. We don't have a direct communication with GCHQ in the UK in intelligence sharing, but we do through the NSA in the United States. They're the five that are acknowledged. However, the NSA then has all these side agreements with so many other countries. 
with Japan, with Israel, with, I think, South Korea, with various NATO countries, and we've no idea who because they're all secret agreements. It's, you know, we didn't know about the one with Israel either, even until Edward Snowden released the documents. But having said that, back to Pine Gap, um, I want to make the point. A lot of people, and we do talk about it, I talk about it myself as a US, US base from time to time because... As um, Richard Tanter said, if it's run by the U.S. and it's paid for by the U.S. and all the senior officials are U.S., it is a U.S. base, even though we call it a joint defense facility. But Pine Gap is more than a U.S. base. It's an Australian base. We've had every defense minister since Malcolm Fraser's government in '75 claim that what happened at Pine Gap occurred with the full knowledge and concurrence of the Australian government. Pine Gap, more than any other foreign U.S. base in the world, including places like Menworth Hill and Bad Abling, has a higher percentage of senior management who are Australians. It used to be back in the 80s and 90s that, um, you know, Andrew Denton, for example, tried to find the highest ranking officer at Pine Gap one year on his TV show and all he could find was the head chef. That's no longer the case. We're in there. And so while it still is in some ways a U.S. base... I like to point out that it is a joint facility because by calling it a US base, in some ways we abrogate the responsibility of the Australian government. The Australian government knows what's going on there and every step along the way, and even people like the Nautilus Institute, Des Ball has put out a paper just a couple of months ago claiming that the Australian government officials are involved in every aspect of Pine Gap apart from its US military communications room. So while we talk about the evil United States, we need to remember that these corporations, while a lot of them are based in the United States, they're not just American corporations. They're, they're part of a global capitalism which transcends national boundaries. And it's in the Australian government's interests, every bit as much as it is in the American government's interests, to maintain the balance of terror that's being promulgated by militaries and arms companies operating out of places like Pine Gap. So it is very much an Australian base as well as an American base. We'll go back to the 1970s and the sacking of Whitlam. Mm. Inference that it was because of his insistence on knowing more about Pine Gap. Do you adhere to that theory? It's always a hard one because I don't want to sound like a paranoid conspiracy theorist. But what we do know is that Whitlam said that he was going to tell the part, he was going to expose what was happening at Pine Gap on the morning of the 11th of November. He, of course, never made it into the Parliament. We do know that through Christopher Boyce, um, who was the whistleblower, he claims that the Americans were very deeply involved and glad to get rid of Whitlam and orchestrated Whitlam. He refers to John Kerr being referred to as our man Kerr by the head honchos of the CIA. Now, I have no doubt that Whitlam was sacked, if not purely because he was going to say what was happening at Pine Gap. I think it was a very significant contributing factor. I think they were also annoyed with him for a whole, or his government, for a whole lot of other very progressive reforms he was bringing in and the road he was taking Australia down the equal rights, you know, the recognition of Indigenous Australians, free university education, Medicare, looking for finance at sources outside of the traditional Western financial superstructures. There are a whole lot of reasons they would have wanted him to go, but also 
Pine Gap was a significant contributing one and probably, if as much as anything, probably determined the day. If he hadn't said he was going to do it on the 11th of November, who knows? He might have lasted until the 15th. But I think it was a very contributing factor. And that's from a guy who did 30-something years, Christopher Boyce, in jail, and come out and say that's the way it was and not flying away from that statement. There's no reason, has absolutely no reason to promulgate bullshit. Taking into account all that you've said today, and you look at the so-called threat of China and Russia when you think that the world is virtually controlled by the US through satellites, through bases, and yet we have this so-called dreadful fear of China and Russia. Yeah, well, it was put to me some years back that there are only three militaries in the world, and they're called the US dollar, the yuan, and the euro. And the euro and the US dollar are are um, in coalition. But China is... When, when you look at the American coalition of the willing and their actions in the Middle East and Central Asia, it's hard not to draw an inference that part of what they're doing is the encirclement of China. We know now that the whole thing about Afghanistan was to get a pipeline out of Central Asia to give the United States companies a economic advantage over China. When we look at what's happening in the Ukraine and Crimea, the Western fight for the Ukraine and Crimea is about access to resources and access to roads and routes. I mean, that's been going on since Tolstoy wrote War and Peace. That's what it was about. It's about access to resources. And when you look at the way the United States is moving all around, and then China is also in dispute with various other countries around the South China Sea about its sovereignty of the South China Sea. Vietnam has just placed rocket launchers, air defences on its territorial claims. Philippines has just reopened the bases. We're not having 40,000 troops back at Angeles City and Alongapo Bay in the Philippines as a lily pad for Syria. They are there for one reason and one reason only, and that's the South China Sea. We've got troop increases in Okinawa in Japan. They're talking about lily pad in Australia, not just a lily pad for Marines in Darwin, but they're also talking, you know, there's a deal with various infrastructure companies to try to build a a port in Darwin, which is alternatively going to be run by the US military or the Chinese, maybe run by a Chinese company and sold to them and leased to the military. I don't know. It's all too messy. But what you've got is a major troop build-up around the South China Sea. That's scaring the hell out of me, and I've not been this concerned in the lead-up to a American election, as we're going to see in November, especially one like this American election, which is a dog's breakfast from go to woe, I'm really concerned that there's going to be some kind of October surprise and it's going to be in our region when you look at all the troops that are moving in, but maybe that's just a paranoid, Jacob. What are you hoping to achieve by going to Pine Gap or Alice Springs? What we want to do is put it back on the map. We know we're not going to close Pine Gap down while we're there next month, but we think that by having a couple of hundred people blockading the road. We're going to be keeping the dream alive of an independent and peaceful Australia, of an independent foreign policy. We're going to be letting the powers that be know that large part of the Australian people still object. We're going to be letting the Australian government know that we're exposing their nefarious activities to the rest of Australia because, unfortunately, 
And while we could do all different kinds of media, nothing makes the media like a blockade and a protest. If you do a news search, for example, while we were at Pine Gap last time in 2003, 2002, sorry, all the news stories about Pine Gap since that point wouldn't equal the, what we had in the two weeks we were there in 2003. So what we want to do is let the Australian people know. And the other thing we want to do, and um, I'm trying to do... and the organisation I'm working with, Renegade Activists, is doing around Melbourne and around the country, is also talking to to people in, in other sectors. Like, there's a big thing, for example, the support of refugees at the moment. People are devastated about the way refugees are being treated in Manus Island and Nauru, and yet good people who are opposing Australian refugee policy still aren't making the connection with Pine Gap. These people are fleeing their countries and coming to Australia because we have a base in the middle of Australia which is being used to bomb their towns and their villages. It's not like um, they're coming to Australia for no purpose at all. They just one day wake up in their town in the Middle East and think, I know, let's go to Australia. Australia is implicit in all the bombings, in all the raids, in all the murders in all the extrajudicial killings, and that is what is causing the refugee problem. And we've got to say to people, if you don't want there to be a refugee problem, the first step is not dropping bombs on the poor buggers. And we need to do it. We need to address what's happening at Nauru and Manus, and and I work on those issues myself. But I think in some ways, I think we've put the cart before the horse when our whole focus on the way Australian government is treating refugees is about the treatment in Nauru and Manus. Why aren't we saying stop dropping bombs on them? Why aren't we saying stop providing communications that's helping helping destroy whole families, whole communities, whole, whole countries? We want to draw the links and talk to refugee advocates and say it's not just that we're anti-American because we're not anti-American. We're not anti-American people, we're anti-corporatisation, we're anti-war, but it's too easy for people to say you're just anti-American. We're not. And then also other issues to, to do with militarism, like the whole way Australia is tied in to the American international adventurism, that we have no independent foreign policy. So part of what we're doing at Pine Gap is not just a blockade, but we've also got a a two-day conference run by the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, which is going to have Australian politicians and academics talking about alternative foreign policies for Australia and what we can be doing, and drawing the links to say, you know, renegade activists say that the heart of every just cause is the cause of justice, and we can't work on Pine Gap without working on every other campaign and you can't work on any other campaign without also addressing the root causes of the campaign, which is often militarism. How do people contact you? Probably the best one is through closepinegap.org on the web or closepinegap.com. They'll both come to us or closepinegap at gmail.com. Just close behind Gap. That's it. That's Jacob Gregg, renegade activist over many, many years. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4. Done by Law will be here in one minute and 40 seconds. It's all for me for today. Bye for now.